If I'm going to see a movie, and we don't see a lot, but if I'm going to see a movie, I'm going to see one of three kinds. I'm going to see a Western. I'm going to see a science fiction movie, which is just a space Western, let's be honest. Or I'm going to see a superhero movie, which, you know, if you squint, kind of like a Western. And, and, the, and the, the superhero movies that I enjoy the most um, are those that run out of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That is the, the movie franchise that gave us you know, Iron Man and Thor and the Avengers movies and a whole host of movies like that. And I enjoy all the characters for different reasons, but the character in that universe that I enjoy the most, or at least maybe am intrigued by the most is the character played by actor Chris Pratt. That character is Peter Quill, who's the leader of the Guardians of the Galaxy. Now, I know when you use a superhero as an illustration in a sermon, you either are saying it to a group of people who love all that stuff and already know the plot lines and so don't need you to rehash them, or you're saying it to a group of people that hate those and are already checking out on me. So let me make this as quick as I possibly can. The thing I'm intrigued about when it comes to Peter Quill is that he lived his entire early life completely unaware of an amazing power that coursed through his veins. Really a spark of divinity in that universe that flowed through his veins that caused him not to really ever recognize his capacities. He had always been kind of shiftless, running around, doing, you know, nothing productive in the world, but then he discovers this and begins to awaken to what his life could possibly be. The reason that I'm drawn to that as a narrative is because I think it is very similar to the narrative by which a good many of us live the Christian life, in particular as it comes to our battle with sin, and in particular those besetting sins that we find ourselves revisiting, recommitting, re-enslaved to time and time and time again in our lives. And what I hope to do today, using the words of Paul from the book of Romans, is show you the amazing power that is coursing through your veins, to show you a reality about your life that is more real than your very last name, to show you a reality that changes your capacities and can change that battle that all of us in this room fight with sin. And we'll do that looking at what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. Would you find Romans chapter 6 in your copy of God's Word, please? Romans chapter 6. Let's review real quick where we are in this section. We started this section of the book of Romans back in January, and we went through chapter 4. And in chapter 4, what uh, Paul is essentially doing is saying, look, because we're sinners, if we're going to be made right with God, it all depends on God. And so we have to put our faith in what God says about being made right with Him. Chapter 5 talks about the object of that faith, Jesus Christ, and explains why Jesus Christ is the adequate object of our faith in being made right with God. What He did, what He sacrificed, and what we receive from Him. But towards the end of that discussion about Jesus in chapter 5, really at the very end, the last two verses, He says this, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that is sin reigned in death, grace 
also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul understands something about human nature. He understands that there are people who are going to read what he just wrote and think, huh. So if I'm under grace, if I sin, it just shows how great grace is. So maybe I get a free pass. Maybe I can sin all I want to. Maybe I can commit any transgression that comes to mind because the grace of God through Jesus Christ is so great that really, if you think about it, it's an act of worship to sin. This is what his people were thinking. And we chuckle at that and we know we polish our halos a little bit when we read that. But you know we all do this, right? I mean, everybody in this room, speaker included, do this. We paper over sins in our lives that we find ourselves revisiting a lot. And really the paper that we place over it says grace on it. I mean, I know I shouldn't, but I'm under grace. I'm under grace. You know, I, I know that that word uh, shouldn't slip out when I'm angry, but I, I'm under grace. I know I shouldn't get buzzed on Friday night, but I'm under grace. I know I, I shouldn't be a jerk, but I'm under grace. We all do this. We might not be as, as uh, trying to, to put a shiny religious spin on it as the Romans were, but all of us use grace as an excuse for our besetting sins in particular. So what does Paul have to say about this? He's going to answer it in chapter 6 with two rhetorical questions. We're going to look at the first rhetorical question today. We'll look at the second rhetorical question, obviously, next week. But here is his response to those that might be thinking, grace is so awesome, I can sin all I want. He says, what shall we say then? Are we continue in sin that grace may abound? And I want to say to Paul here, Paul, tell me that something's stupid without saying it's stupid. And here's how he does it. He uses the words, by no means. What shall we say then? Are we continue sin, uh, continuing sin that grace may abound? By no means. It's impossible in our language really to communicate the dismissiveness and the disdain that Paul has for anyone who would think or that kind of thinking that would lead them to conclude that as a follower of Jesus, under the grace of Jesus, sin's not a big deal anymore. I can sin all I want. And then he says this, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Now that's his answer. That's why he thinks it's stupid to conclude that you can sin all you want to if you're under grace. The answer is how can we who died to sin still live in it? And he begins now to unpack what he means by that, how can we who died to sin continue to live in it, by pointing back to something that would have been familiar to every one of his readers who had professed Christ. He points back to their baptism. Here's what he says in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What happens at baptism? Well, for most of us, what happens at baptism is that family comes in from out of town and people get 55 recordings of it on their cell phones and 
They look back on it fondly. It shows up in uh, these kids' uh, high school graduation slideshows that are played at the house, and we remember that day when everybody was there and we got baptized. And all of that's significant and all of that's important, and, and I really am not dismissing it, frankly, because that was the experience for little Caleb Lynch one day and little Abigail Lynch one day. But because it is such a normal part of, especially the religious routine, we lose sight of what it was in the first century. And we have to feel the power of what this was in the first century. When you were baptized in the first century, it was a complete, full identification, a before and after declaration with the life of Jesus being the foundation. I am identifying fully with the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is becoming the primary compass by which I navigate the rest of my life. Everything that happened before this moment is, is different from everything that will happen after this moment. I am someone who has fully identified with the life of Christ. Now, so far, I've used the words of identification. In other words, saying, like we believe about baptism, that baptism pictures us dying to sin, like Christ died to sin, and being resurrected, walking in newness of life, like Jesus Christ was resurrected and walking in newness of life. We're just saying simply, you know, it pictures all of that, but that's not where Paul's going. To answer his question, remember, asking the question, how can we who died to sin still live in it? He points back to our identification with Jesus at baptism, and then he lays down the law of what that really was. Look at verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That word that he uses is not identification. It's not pictured. It's united. We are united, brought together, with Jesus in his death and brought together with Jesus in his life. And here is a summary of what he's about to unpack. It's on your screens. He is about to say this. Following Jesus means that we are joined to his death for sin and joined to his resurrected life free from sin. If you're wanting to take a picture, people did that in the early services. It's a different world. Or you want to write it down, whatever, that's fine. But here's what he's about to unpack. And this, this will be revolutionary as we get into it, I think, for a lot of people. This will awaken you to something that is in you that you have really never before fully appreciated. Following Jesus means that we are joined to his death for sin and his resurrected life free from sin. And verses 6 and 7 or his explanation of the first part, which means that 6 and 7 is an explanation of what he says in verse 3. By way of reminder, verse 3 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And he explains why that is so in verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. He says there something that he says in other places. Galatians 
He says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Jesus Christ lives in me. He does not say, it's like I've been crucified with Christ. He does not say, it's, it's a picture of me being crucified with Christ. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified. Listen very closely. The cross is not a metaphor for your Death to sin. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are joined with Jesus in his death to sin. And so you experientially benefit and experience what Christ provided for you through his death on the cross. He says, Paul does in verse 6, that the body of sin through that is brought to nothing. Meaning what? It means that the penalty of sin being death, being separation from God, had nothing else left to do. It was spent fully on the death of Christ. So because being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that I just bring myself alongside him and identify with him. Because being a follower of Jesus means that I am brought into union with Jesus. His death and sin being spent by way of its penalty on him becomes my reality. I have been crucified with Christ. The penalty of sin has been paid in full. The power of sin has been rendered null and void because of what Jesus has done on the cross, and I have been, if I'm a follower of Jesus, joined with him in that. And then in verses 8 through 10, he explains the second part of our statement that we had up a little bit ago, which is actually his explanation of verse 4. By way of reminder, verse 4 says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might, too, walk in newness of life. We ask ourselves, well, what did he mean by that? Well, he tells us in verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. So the experiential reality continues. If I've been crucified with Christ, I no longer live, Paul says in Galatians 2.20. Jesus Christ lives in me. So, so if we've experienced his death experientially, we experience his life experientially. We believe that we will also live with him. Verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him because the penalty of death has been paid. The power of death and sin has been broken. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So again, he's saying the resurrection is not a metaphor for your victory. Please hear that. It is not an example for you to follow. When you surrender yourself to Jesus as Savior, you are brought into union with Christ. This is not an obscure teaching in the Bible. This is the reality of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You are brought into union with Christ. And just as you were crucified with Him... He lives in you. You live with Him. You have been joined into that resurrection. And so the power of life and victory that He gained becomes experientially yours. So this is 
the reality of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. When you surrender yourself to Him, you are brought into full union with Christ. The power of sin is broken in His death, and the power of victory is achieved through His resurrection. You are in full union. So the the keys to victory in our battles with besetting sin isn't willpower, it's Jesus. But then we all recognize, well, that's good, but I, I sin today. Um, I, I still find myself struggling with sin. Paul's going to go into that in a few more weeks in Romans chapter 7. He says, I experience, I experience that too. So then again, because we're wiggly and we like to you know, find our way uh, to a loophole somewhere spiritually, he understands that people could say, well, if I sin, I guess it must be Jesus' fault. He must have been napping or on a break, or I wouldn't have done that. So we can convince ourselves that we've got no moral responsibility at all when it comes to sin. Paul closes that loophole, slams the door shut in verse 11, in light of the fact Surrendering to Jesus means that you're brought into full union with Him and therefore you experience His death breaking the power of sin and experience His life which represents victory over sin because you experience all of that having been brought into union with it. He says in verse 11, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourself dead to sin. That is our responsibility. But I like how some of the other English translations put it uh, a, a little better um, because I'm a, I'm a rural boy and we use this word. It's reckon. Reckon yourselves. That sounds like Tennessee. Reckon yourselves. Dead to sin. And alive to Christ Jesus. You have to decide as a follower of Jesus, moment by moment, am I going to live in the power of my true identity in Jesus? Or am I going to live in the power of the sin which Jesus defeated? Will I consider myself, will I reckon myself dead to that. He issues a final challenge, verse 12. Let sin therefore, uh, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. He explains what he means in verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Again, we've been brought into full union with Christ, so all of this is His and belongs to Him. He is in me. He is is filling me. And so I have a choice that I have to make day by day, moment by moment. Am, Am I going to present this mind and these eyes and this mouth and these hands As slaves, and he'll get into this in chapter 6 a little later, am I going to present all of this as a slave to the righteousness of my Jesus, who I belong to, 
Or am I going to present my mind and my eyes and my mouth and my hands and all of this as slaves to the sin which he defeated? If I do that, I'm going to constantly find myself beset by things that I'm constantly trying to fight. But if I do this, I experience the victory he's already won. Not that he will win. But I experience the victory he's already won. Why? For sin will have no dominion over you. It will not rule you. It does not rule you because it does not rule Jesus. Since you are not under law, but under grace. So what does grace do? Grace gives you a capacity that that is Jesus himself to experience his victory in life over sin. That's what grace does. It doesn't give you permission to live a consequence-free life. So what do we do with this? I mean, what what habits should we ingrain in ourselves that are not willpower habits, but are instead habits that are rooted in our identity that can help us overcome these sins which constantly weave their ways back into our lives? Today's sermon is titled, Grave Matters. In one sense, we're talking about sin being a serious matter for a Christian, not something that they can dismiss. But on the other, we're talking about it being a grave matter because the grave of Jesus represents the victory that he experienced and we experience over sin. So let me give you three grave-related practical helps to to put this into practice in your life. First, leave sin in the grave. Leave sin in the grave. You say, Derek, what do you mean by that? I mean, don't build your identity around your sin. Listen to me. Everybody, please look me dead in the eye. Do not Build your identity around your sin. That is not who you are. I'm a big fan of of support groups, of of groups that get together to help people overcome various kinds of, of addictions. There are people in our church that have availed themselves of those. We recommend people to that kind of accountability if they find themselves trapped with some kind of of addiction, but here's what always makes me twinge about the nature of those groups. They tend to encourage people to build their identity around their sin. My name is Derek, and I'm an alcoholic. My name is Derek, and I am a drug addict. My name is Derek, and I am a sex addict. We build an entire frame of reference about ourselves around that sin, that is not who you are if you're a follower of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have been brought into full union with Jesus. And your identity is as a follower of His. Hard stop. That's who you are. You're a follower of Jesus. I'm a big fan of personality inventories. In the early days of 
this era of Blue Valley Baptist Church, there wasn't any staff, and so I administered personality inventories to anybody that showed up on the front door of the church to be on staff because we needed to know how we would work with one another. I'm a big, big fan of them, but here's what always makes me a little bit when it comes to personality inventories. You know, I'm a D. That just means I'm a jerk. And I am, by the way. I wasn't any of those other things previously. I feel like I need to make that clear. But I am a D, and I am a jerk. I'm an ENTJ, means I'm arrogant. We just accept that about ourselves. We just kind of build that into the fabric of our lives. We say, well, it's just who I am. It's not great, but hey, Grace, that is not who you are. If you have given yourself to Jesus, if you've surrendered your life to follow him, you've been brought into full union with Jesus. And what is more true of you than your last name is that Jesus Christ lives in you. In a church like ours, the size that it is, multiple campuses, there's without a doubt people that come week in and week out struggling with sexual identity. And sadly, the nature of our theological culture is that a good many of you who are struggling with sexual identity that might be in this room listening to me online right now are struggling silently and quietly. You just don't feel like you can tell anybody. But maybe you've opened up. Maybe you've talked to somebody about it. And they give you wise counsel to live celibate in that temptation. But then they say something to you that they mean well that hurts you. They give you permission to continue to be defined by your temptation. And so the whole idea of of being a a gay Christian comes about. I get what they're trying to communicate. But what's being given you by way of help is actually hurting you because it's telling you to define yourself by your temptation. It's just as ludicrous to define yourself by that temptation as it would be to define myself by any temptation that I might experience. No one would 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 dare accept from someone a self-identification, I'm a lustful Christian. No one would dare do that. And yet we do it with this. Listen, you are not your temptation. That is not the sum total of your identity. You have been brought into full union with Jesus Christ. His death to sin is your death to sin. His resurrection is your resurrected life having victory over sin, don't commit to any other identity than that you are a follower of Jesus. That's what it means to leave sin in the grave. But then next, walk out of the grave. Walk out of the grave. What do I mean? I mean that we we need to make a a regular day-by-day, moment-by-moment commitment to live in the power of the life that Jesus lives in and through us. And to this, I have no new information to give you. It's, It's as simple as spending time in the word that he has given us, day by day, speaking to him through his word, praying it out to him 
in a dynamic relationship as we read. It is spending and cultivating times of silence and solitude in your life where you're reflecting on the very Word of God. It is not having a quiet time that you check the box on or a read the Bible through a year that you just check the boxes are. That's not doing anything for you except inoculating you to the pain of the fact that Jesus is not really alive as a presence in and through you. In order to cultivate this identity of walking in the life that Jesus has given us, we have to make a commitment to encounter God in His Word, not just on a daily basis, but as a regular basis throughout our day. And if you need help knowing how to do that, talk to one of the pastors, one of the staff, one of the elders, one of the deacons. Go to the library, check out Praying the Bible by Donald Whitney. Better yet, buy it right now. I give you permission to look at your phones. (laughs) Buy it right now from Amazon for $15. If you can't afford it, talk to David Neely, who just had a heart attack um, (laughs) navigating this online. But Leave sin in the grave. Build your identity. You're a follower of Jesus. Hard stop, full stop. Walk out of the grave. Cultivate, deepen yourself in the experience of being a child of God. And then finally, and this is so important, reach into the grave. You say, I, what? It's all been about leaving. What do you mean reach into the grave? I mean this. If you're connected... If you know people at Blue Valley, and you should, we should be more than just sitting in a pew. Connected and you know people and love people at Blue Valley, you may be in a situation sometime when one of your friends comes to you and says, I can't talk to anybody about this except you. And I struggle with this or this or this. And I find it coming back over and over and over again. And you know what? More often than not, constitutes our counsel back to them well quit stop it just quit we preach law back to them you're going to have neighbors you're going to have co-workers who maybe are aware of the difference in the distinction of your life they ought to be if you're not living in connection with outsiders then you're not fulfilling the marching orders of the Great Commission. You need to know people like this. And they may come to you wanting some counsel. They'll, they'll put it like this, I know you go to church. But man, I find myself trapped in this thing, and if my spouse knew, or if my boss knew, or if my kids knew, it'd destroy my home, it'd destroy my career. Can you help me? More often than not, we say, come to church and quit. Stop it. We preach law to them. And then that's the self-talk we give ourselves. Sometimes we continue to try to live in that grave. And so what do we say to ourselves? Derek, stop. Quit being a jerk. (laughs) It never works because you're preaching law to yourself. When I say reach back into the grave, I mean reach back and Give the good news of life in Jesus. Point people to Jesus who have forgotten it, who are followers of Jesus, have forgotten that their lives have been brought into full union with him. Preach the life of Jesus to your neighbors and to your friends and to your co-workers 
and don't preach a law to them that they can't fulfill and, and, and preach Jesus to yourself. Because you'll never be able to overcome this in your own power. But when you're brought to the cross of Jesus Christ, you're brought into full union with him and you for the first time in your existence have a choice. By the power of Christ in me, I can present myself as a slave to righteousness or I can continue to live a death that Jesus overcame for me. Years ago, when we were preaching through the book of Colossians, I said over and over again that the key theme of the book of Colossians was that Jesus intends our lives to become the lives that he would live if Jesus were living our lives in the flesh. And that's all rooted in what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. As you therefore have received, been brought into full union, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. This is what it means to not just live the Christian life. This is the means by which we defeat the power of sin in the power of the one who defeated sin living in and through us.